You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Revelation 21 is where we're going to be today. This is our last installment in the series where we've gone through the story of God. And in case you have not been with us, let me give you a quick recap. Uh, the Bible is basically a library of 66 books that are all telling one unified story that leads to Jesus. And if you want to basically break down this Bible into six chapters, here it is. What we said in week one, chapter one, is creation, that God created the world good and beautiful and true uh, out of the overflow of his own perfections. He created humans in his image to reflect his glory to the world. He partnered with humans uh, to take his creation towards a desirable destination. However, what we realize in the next chapter is the crisis. And the crisis is that human beings don't trust God. Uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, they basically decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them not to eat from. They decided, I know better how to rule my life than you, God. That's called sin. When sin entered the picture, so did death and disease and all kinds of dysfunction. Fortunately, what we discovered in the third installment, the third chapter, the covenant chapter, is that God doesn't give up on his creation. Uh, God doesn't just kind of Thanos the whole thing and snap his fingers and make it all disappear. But instead, he comes to a man named Abram and he says, look, I am going to, through you, I am going to create a nation that will bless the nations, that will show the people a picture of what the kingdom of God is like so people can experience life with me again. However, if you read the Old Testament, it's very depressing. Uh, there is a nation, the nation of Israel, but they continue to sin over and over and over. They never get it right. But God, again, in his grace and mercy, doesn't give up on them. In fact, through them comes this man by the name of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, known as Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He, he succeeds everywhere that humans fail. He never sins. He never once disobeys God. It is a perfect sinless life. We could not live. He dies a death on a cross. We deserve to die. He rises or raises from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell, and, and giving away, providing a way for us to enter into the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. Though the kingdom of God is here, it's not fully here. So we can experience God's presence now, but we don't experience it exactly in full, right? There's still sin. There's still darkness. There's still brokenness. And so what does Jesus do? Well, that moves us to the fifth chapter which is the church, what we talked about last week. And basically what we learned here is the kingdom work that Jesus began to do in the power of the Spirit, he now wants to continue to do through his church in the power of the Spirit. We are to be a people through proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating uh, the power of the kingdom of God through the power of the Spirit. We're to advance God's kingdom, to help other people who are far from him find their way back into a relationship with him. That's what we've covered in five weeks, all right there in about five minutes. And today, we come to the final installment, which is the new creation. And with that, I'm going to invite our scripture reader uh, to go ahead and come forward, Gretchen. And as she comes forward, I'm about you to stand with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's Word. Today's teaching text is Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 8, and Revelations chapter 22, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write them down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to them, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Father, would you right now, through the power of your spirit, help us to believe that this word is in fact true. I pray that you would um, create in us, just in the people in this room or those listening online, the people who truly begin to live with the end in mind. Um, and that we would see this ending as it is talked about here as the ultimate reality, that it is as certain and sure as even the the ground that we feel beneath our feet right now. And I pray that, uh, Lord, as we reflect on um, these realities and these truths, that today that somehow for the power of your Spirit, that they would move from just being head knowledge um, to to truly transforming our hearts and transforming our lives Uh, We are here, God, because we know that we need more than just what we can currently see, what we can currently muster together on our own strength and our own power. And so now we come and we're listening to you. Speak to us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. On a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero. And faced with this realization, uh, some of the greatest thinkers throughout the world have been seized with madness and despair. I think of the writer of Ecclesiastes, who once said that all of life is vanity, uh, all of life is hevel, it means all of life is smoke, and so what he says, if you read Ecclesiastes, he says, ah, it doesn't really matter how much popularity you get, it doesn't matter how much power you have or possessions you have or it doesn't really matter how much pleasure you experience. At the end of, the, you know, of it all, it's all going to be taken away because of this thing called death. I think of Albert Camus, who wrote a series of essays called The Myth of Sisyphus that begins with this assertion. He says, the only serious question in life that one should be asking is whether or not to kill themselves. He then goes on uh, to liken humanity to the Sisyphus of mythology who was condemned to push this boulder up a mountain and then let it roll back down, and then push it back up the mountain, and let it roll back down forever. And so roll, repeat, roll, forever. As Tyler Durbin says in the movie Fight Club, this is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. And when we're confronted with this reality, one of the questions that we have to ask is, well, what happens when we die? What happens, not if, but when we die? What happens whenever we take our last breath 
here on this earth as we know it. Uh, Damien Eccles, uh, he's one of the, the teenagers who was um, accused of killing or charged with killing uh, the three boys at the West Memphis Three trial back in the early 90s. I listened to his memoir last year, and here's a question he asked. He says, is death the end or is there something more? This is the ultimate question. It has been the defining issue for entire cultures from the ancient Egyptians to the present. And in truth, there is no more important question any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to the hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who has lost a child. You will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. Some of you have experienced this wrecking ball personally. Um, I have sat in a room with a family who decided to take their three-year-old off life support. I've also been with a, a 90-year-old woman who I've sat with her as we've watched her husband of 55 years take his last breath. I've preached funerals for men, women, and children. And one of the things that I have personally been reminded of over and over again is no matter who you are or where you come from, death is the great equalizer. Death really doesn't care about you. It doesn't care how rich you are. It doesn't care how important you are to your spouse or your kids. It doesn't care how old you are, educated you are. It doesn't care what race you are. Like, death will come for all of us. Tim Keller says it like this. The fact is, staving off your own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. But despite our best intentions, death is still, for the most part, random. And it always feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, I heard just yesterday of a 37-year-old man who died of a heart attack in his shower. Death, for the most part, is random, and it's absolutely coming. Therefore, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, or no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, death will inevitably ruin it all. Just here to encourage you this morning. Death is coming for all of us, and therefore a question that we have to try to answer is what awaits us? What does the future actually look like when we die? And with that question in mind, I want you to look back with me at Revelation 21, and just at the context for you, because the Apostle John, who wrote this book, uh, because he refuses to confess Caesar as the Lord, because he refuses to worship Caesar rather than Jesus, he has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And when you think of him being exiled to this island, don't think of Tom Hanks and Castaway, but rather think of a prisoner at Alcatraz. Just worse. And so here is John, imagine this, in isolation, in complete darkness, in his own prison cell, and he receives this revelation from Jesus that he wants to deliver to the local churches. Remember, Jesus loves the local church. When you look in Revelation, he's walking among the local church. And so he says, deliver this message to the local church, who at this point is facing two major threats, crisis and complacency. They're experiencing crisis. They are being persecuted. They are being martyred because of their faith. And as a result, there's some of that that are becoming complacent. They're saying, you know what? This old Jesus thing isn't really all it cracked out to be. Like, I'm not experiencing my best life now, despite what maybe what some books might say, right? Like, like I'm actually, like, as a result of following Jesus, my life has gotten worse. And so they become complacent. They become apathetic. They're kind of pulling back a little bit on this whole Jesus thing. And because Jesus knows this is true, he says, look, here's what I want you to do. Uh, he goes, I want to open up your eyes, and I want you to see there's actually more going on than just what you can feel. 
what you can touch, what you can taste, what you can see. There's more happening here than what you think is happening here. And so he shows them what's actually happening kind of in the spiritual world beyond what they can see with their eyes. But then more than that, he says, let me show you what awaits you in the future if you will hang on, if you will persevere to the end, if you will continue to put your faith in Christ, even if others turn away, here is the future. Here's what awaits you after the physical death that many of you are already beginning to experience because of your faith. And in this picture he gives us, he gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God when it's fully overlapped with the kingdom of man. He gives us a glimpse of what this new heaven, this new earth is going to be like, this glimpse. And, and in this, if you're taking note, there are five things he wants us to see. There are five truths that if you believe them will not only change your view of the afterlife, but will change how you live in this life. And the first thing we see is this, is that in this heaven, he says in the kingdom of God, creation will be remade. That's the first point. Creation will be remade. Look at me in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for the word new. Okay, there is the Greek word neos, which means brand new, and then there's the word kanos, which means remade. Kanos is the word that is used right here. And the reason that matters is, listen, popular, uh, despite popular opinion, God, at the end of times, is not just going to destroy his creation. He's not just going to destroy this world and then build a whole new world from scratch. Yes, the Bible is clear that God will destroy Satan, who is the enemy of his creation, but he's not going to destroy the creation itself. Instead, he's going to restore it. He's going to renew it. He's going to, it says here, remake it. And notice, this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 5. If you skip down and look at it, we read it earlier. He says, I am making everything new. Notice he doesn't say, I'm making all new things. You see, do you understand the difference? I'm making everything new. In other words, I'm taking what currently exists and I'm remaking it. I'm refurbishing it. I'm repurposing it. I'm going to transform this thing that looks kind of old and beat up and whatever into something that is new and beautiful. And if that's confusing to you, think about this. When my wife and I got married, uh, we were dirt poor, uh, didn't have really any money in our bank account, and uh, every single piece of furniture we had in our house was given to us by someone else. It was either inherited uh, because my grandparents had died, I took their furniture, or uh, my parents or somebody else gave us some of their furniture they didn't want. And one of the pieces of furniture that was given to us, we still have it today. It was this little ugly maroon dresser with these little gold dangly like uh knobby things i mean it was it was disgusting it was probably beautiful back in the day in, in the 70s uh but it was not really that nice whenever we got it but here's the thing we still have it and you know why because i remade it i actually sanded it down with a sander and i began to put primer on it and then several coats of paint i drilled new holes where the uh, drawers are i put in new handles and as a result it looked brand new and that is an image of what Jesus is going to do with creation. Rather than just setting us out by the curb and hoping somebody else takes us or destroying us altogether, just throwing us in the trash, God is going to take the world as we know it and completely remake it. He's going to transform it into something that is going to be better and more beautiful than it is right now. And here's why that matters so much. Listen, when you think of heaven, it's important. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. Like, I don't know what it's going to be like. Am I going to be bored? Like, like when you think of heaven, here's what you need to realize. Heaven is everything that you love about earth, but with all of the imperfections sanded out of it. Heaven is everything that you love about earth, 
but with all of the sin and all the imperfections just kind of rinsed out of it, there will be music in heaven. Like the best music you've ever heard. There will be art in heaven. There will be the most delicious food you could imagine in heaven. There will be sports, I believe, in heaven. There will be your, some of your favorite hobbies. Like they will be in heaven. Everything we love will be there, but it will be sinless it will be perfect. It will be pure in every single way. This is why one author I read this past week said that Christianity is the most materialistic of all religions. Meaning that Christianity teaches that God cares about the material things. He cares about the physical world. Just as, think about this, when Jesus got out of the grave, he got out of the grave with a physical body, with his nose and his eyes and his hair. He was recognizable. But he was glorified. He was, his body was perfected. Like just as Jesus experienced a death, burial, and resurrection, this world, so to speak, will experience a death, burial, and resurrection. Like this world, your nose, your eyes, your hair, like it will be all kept but made perfect, fully redeemed, restored, made better than ever. Which means there is coming a day, Gretchen, where we will not have a gluten allergy. Coming a day where I will eat Waffle House every single day with no consequences. That's going to happen. And you won't have to make me gluten-free cinnamon rolls anymore, Valerie. Just make the normal thing, right? Why? Because God cares about the material. He cares about it so much, he created it. This thing's his idea. He's not just going to be like, ah, I'm kind of done with it, create it, do something new. Like, no, like everything, spiritually, physically, is going to be completely remade. Not only that, uh, but we see, secondly, for those who are taking notes, not only is creation going to be remade, but relationships will be restored. Look with me in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Look at this. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Uh, Ray Ortland, I once heard him say that heaven is going to feel like a romance. That's going to be like the perfect wedding day. And if you notice, we will be beautiful and ravishing and finally able to receive the love that we are longing for. It is so hard to receive love, is it not? To believe you're loved? Like, isn't that why we hide so much and we pretend? It's like, if people really knew me, like, they wouldn't love me. It's, it's easier, I don't know about you, it's easier for me to give a compliment than to receive a compliment. You ever notice that? Like, if someone tries to give you a compliment, they look you in the eyes, like, what do you want to do? You kind of like dart away? That's shame. It's harder for you to receive that love. Some of the worst moments we have in our life are moments of rejection, are they not? Whether it's when you were a kid and you had to sit alone at the lunch table or someone picked on you because the clothes you wore or whatever else, or as an adult, times where because you didn't live up to someone else's standard or they said they loved you as soon as you didn't meet that expectation, they left you. But the good news about heaven is, listen to this, guys. In heaven, you will never feel rejected again, ever. There will never be one second of any day where you will feel unworthy of love. You will finally see yourself as God sees you. And you will experience the love you have been longing for, which is the love of God, the one whom your heart was made for. He will fill your heart with a love that is greater than any love you've ever experienced. You know, Revelation 21, 22 is, is a fan, it's an amazing verse. Because here's what it says. Listen to this. Revelation 21, 22. There is no temple in heaven. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, which means God is everywhere. Everywhere. And I want you to think about that, because John, who wrote Revelation, also said in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. 
And so when you understand Revelation 21, 22, here's what it's saying. The presence of God, who is love, will permeate every square inch of the new world. And you know what that means? Listen, no matter where you go in heaven, you will always be in love. No matter where you go, no matter where you move, you will just be moving deeper and deeper and further and further in love. And because that is true, not only will we experience perfect union with God, but we will also experience perfect unity with others. Men, women, children who look different than even you look. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Bible says. Notice in verse 3 it says God's dwelling places among the people, or it could be even better translated as God's dwelling places among the peoples. And so not only does God not obliterate his creation, but he doesn't obliterate all people. He brings people from every walk of life, every shape and size, every single nationality. He brings them into his heaven, and he makes us family. And as Jesus says in John 15, we are abiding in the love of God, which we cannot not do in heaven. As we are abiding in the love of God, naturally we become conduits of that love back and forth into the life of one another. How cool is that? Uh, A couple weeks ago, one of our missional communities, the McDonald Missional Community, they hosted some international students at Philip and Gretchen Greer's house. This picture, by the way, was taken before they said like 15 internationals had already left. So what a crowd. It's incredible. People from all over the world coming and just eating with them, having fun, laughing. And before it was over, this Muslim girl from Pakistan came up to Daniel, and she said to him, this is the most at home I have felt since moving to America. Think about that statement. What did she mean when she said that? This is the most at home I have felt since moving to America. Translation, this is the most loved I have felt. This is the safest I have felt. This is the most comfortable I have felt. This is the most welcomed I have felt. What is she experiencing? A taste of heaven on earth. She's experiencing a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And let me tell you guys, the kingdom of God, listen to this. Despite what you have believed, the kingdom of God is going to be a lot less like a worship service around a stage and a lot more like a family feast around a table. And that table is going to be a place where you can be fully known, fully long, and fully belong, and fully loved. And so, that's what heaven will be like. Third, we see this. Heaven is a place where we will receive, and I love this one, a perfect rest. Perfect, complete, and total rest. I got this Garmin watch a couple years ago, and it, and it uh, measures not just physical stress, but it measures emotional stress. And one of the things I realized when I got this watch is there are times where though physically I can be resting, emotionally I'm still stressing. Does that make sense? So there's times where I'm, I'm like sitting still, but because my mind is still running a thousand miles an hour, I might still be stressing over something. And I know, because I talk with enough of you, that I'm not alone in that. That there are many of you in here who struggle to rest, who struggle to relax. That's why you have a hard time with things like silence and solitude, because you're like, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. That's why some of you, like, though you stop working, you're 8 to 5, you come home and you, like, keep working. You keep finding something to do. Busy work. It is why some of you experience a tightness in your chest or tension in your neck and your shoulders. It's why you can have stress headaches or all these gut issues. And where does a lot of that come from? I, I won't go into all the science of this. Go read the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. But, but the reason you experience that, ultimately, is because of the trauma you've experienced in your life. 
I don't know if you realize this, but you can't go through this sinful world without experiencing trauma, whether it be big T trauma or little T trauma. We've all been rejected. We've all at times been uh, at some capacity abused. Uh, we've all been at times we've experienced death. We've experienced loss. We've all received the phone call that it was bad news, not good news, right? We've all on some level or another experienced trauma. And here's what you need to know. And again, I could geek out on this, but I'm just going to try to move fast. I can talk about the science of it later if you want. Your body does not have the capacity to fear the future. All your body can do is fear the past repeating itself. If you go through trauma, if you experience hardship, and we all do in this life, you can't not experience it in a fallen, broken world. When you experience trauma, your body, because it's trying to keep you alive, will go on high alert and will constantly be scanning the environment for more threats that could do to you what happened in the past that hurt you. That keeps you from being able to rest. And here's the good news about, good news about heaven. When you get into heaven, notice in verse 4 in here, it says all sad things are going to come untrue. All wrong things are going to be undone. Jesus, with his nail-scarred hands, are going to wipe away your tears and heal your trauma, and there's not going to be any threat of death or disaster or chaos of any kind. In verse 1, notice it says, In heaven, there's no longer any sea. Some of you like you hear that, like that, that doesn't sound fun. Like I love the beach. It's not saying it's not going to be a literal beach. Like the sea in ancient times was a place of chaos. It was a place of, of destruction. That's the way they, they viewed it. It's a place where there was monsters like Leviathan, right, and, and, and threats. And so what it's saying here is, is that will not be the case in heaven. There will be no inner turbulence or, tor, or, tor, or turmoil. Sorry, I talk for a living. No turbulence or turmoil of any kind, which means in heaven you're finally going to be able to just go, forever. Perfect, total, complete rest, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Fourth, not only will you receive a perfect rest, but you'll be giving rewarding responsibility. In Revelation 22, 3, we read it earlier, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. In heaven, you will have a job. In heaven, you will work. And some of you are like, oh, that sounds awful. The only reason it sounds awful is because God cursed the work that we currently experience here on earth. That means that right now, because our work is cursed, all of us at some point are like, oh, I wish I could have a different job. We all experience thorns and thistles. But here's the thing, in heaven, the curse is going to be removed. That's what it just said. There's no longer going to be any curse. And here's what's so beautiful about that. When the curse is removed, what that means is rather than your work being frustrating, it'll be fun, fruitful, and fulfilling. One of my favorite things to do with people is what's called the motivated abilities exercise, where I help people identify from their past what are 10 things, and you should do this sometime. It's really, really helpful. What are 10 things that you were both good at and enjoyed? 10 things, as, you can, as far back as you can think as a child. What are 10 things you're both good at and enjoyed? And let's try to find a theme, and let's try to see if you can do that one thing as a vocation, as a calling, as a job. That, by the way, is the goal. You should try to help your kids with that. Find the thing that they're both good at and enjoy. Find where that intersects and encourage them to do that for the good of others and the glory of God. If they'll do that, they'll never feel like they work a day in their life. Like It will make the world a better place as a result of that. And here's the thing in heaven, that's the kind of work you will do. God created you. He, he wired you. He knows what you like. He knows how, how, what you desire. He knows uh, exactly what job you should be doing. And he's going to give you that specific, that unique job where you will serve others for their good, for your good, and his glory. Finally, in heaven, not only will creation be remade, not only relationships restored, not only will you experience a perfect rest and be given rewarding responsibility, 
but you will also be treated as royalty. Chapter 22, verse 5, again, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Look at this. And they will, what's the word? It's not on the screen. Okay. They will reign forever and ever. And by the way, that's not on the slide person. That's on me because I didn't send that verse. So um, they will reign forever and ever. That word reign in the Greek literally means to reign as royalty, to reign as a king or a queen, as a prince or a princess. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will enter the kingdom of God. But notice how though you go to the kingdom poor, Jesus then turns you from rags to royalty. Jesus puts us in the place of high honor as king and queens. He exalts us to this place. And I don't really fully understand what all this means, but I do know that in heaven we will reign with Jesus victoriously for all eternity. It's a crazy thought. And some of you I know right now, you're thinking, well, that's a great message, Jerry. Very inspiring, but here's the problem. I've got to go to work tomorrow. And I've got to deal with annoying people. And my spouse is still lousy. And my kids still act like little midget demons. And, you know, I still have all of these issues with my health or whatever else it may be. So that's all great about what's going to happen to me after I die. But here's my question. How does that help me with how I'm going to live before I die? And here's what I would just say. I want to be very clear. Focusing on heaven, focusing on the next life, is not going to take all your problems away. Focusing on heaven will not protect you from pain and suffering. It will not get rid of all of your problems. It will not keep you from experiencing heartbreak or sorrow or melancholy. But here's the thing. If you will take this truth to heart, it will, in fact, begin to fill you with a peace and a strength to endure anything that the world throws at you. And here's, here's why I say that. A few weeks ago, I introduced my kids to the movie Rudy. Anybody here seen the movie Rudy? Excellent movie. Top five movie, probably of all time. It's a true story, and it is about this undersized kid who was not very smart that had a dream to play football for the University of Notre Dame, and uh, the dream ends up becoming a reality, but not before he experiences a lot of shut doors, a lot of rejection, a lot of people making fun of him, a lot of like sleepless nights where he's working, a a full-time job, and also trying to study. I mean, it's just his whole, what makes a, a story good, by the way, is conflict. Just remember that in your own story, by the way. His whole story is filled with conflict, I mean, and if you're watching it for the first time, you're like, this is not going to end well. It's not going to end well. And maybe you're stressing out a little bit as he's stressing out. But here's the thing. I've seen that movie 10 times. So when I watch Rudy, I don't get stressed out. Even in the midst of the pain. Even in the midst of the loss. Even in the midst of the hardship. And you know why I don't stress out? You know why I don't get anxious? Because I know how the story ends. It ends with him actually being exalted. With him being put on the shoulders of his teammates and being carried off the field. Since then, by the way, no other player in Notre Dame history has been carried off the field. But Rudy was carried off the field. And here's the thing. We know, guys, how the story ends. Is there going to be loss in this life? Is there going to be hardship? Is there going to be difficulties? Absolutely. But in the end, we win. In the end, Christ exalts us. Like, in the end, we reign with him victoriously. And so will there be more difficult times in your life? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Even when it seems like the world is spinning out of control, the Bible is clear that the sovereign God of the universe is working all things according to the purpose of his will. There are no rogue molecules, and he has taken even the worst things that has ever happened in your life, and he's turning it all together for your good and his glory. And so listen, no matter what you're facing right now, now, guys, your future is incredibly bright. 
If you are in Christ, the best is yet to come. And here's why you need to remember that. Because there are some of you right now who have believed the lie that this existence is your one shot at happiness. And therefore, because you believe this is all there is, you're just living for the here and the now, you're seeking the city that is here rather than the city that is to come. And therefore, what I would say as a result of that, you're actually settling for something much less than you were made for. As C.S. Lewis says, you are settling for mud pies when there is a vacation at sea. You are, you are living for instant gratification rather than eternal gratification. The, the, writer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, think about this, that when God created you, he put eternity into your heart. That means that you long for something eternal. Whether you realize it or not, you long for something that cannot break, that cannot fade away, that cannot go into a junkyard. You long for something that's consistent, that will always be there. In other words, you long for God. So all the longings you have, sex, money, fame, popularity, below all of that is really a deep, a deep longing for God himself. And if you try to build your life therefore on anything or anyone else other than God, you're going to miss out on what your heart desires and needs the most. I told y'all last week that I will not use Deion Sanders as an illustration again if he loses. I knew he was going to get thumped yesterday by Oregon. They got destroyed. Wasn't going to use a Deion illustration, but Sean Goodson sent me a good one. So, guy in the second row, if you're mad at me for using Deion again, you should blame him. This is actually excellent. This is very, very good. Deion Sanders was asked about why he decided to give his life to Jesus. Please hear this, guys. This, remember, this isn't a, a paid pastor. Can you just hear that for a moment? This isn't a guy that's getting paid to tell you about Jesus. He's just telling you his story because a reporter asked about it. And here's what he said. This is just a real-life person. I was kissing hell. At the height of everything, I was going through hell. I was winning Super Bowls, playing World Series, and doing my thing, but I had nothing. I felt like no one loved me besides my kids. I was sleeping with two to three women a night but wasn't satisfied. I had hundreds of suits but couldn't cover the pain. I had three to 400 shoes but couldn't take a step in the right direction. I had 10 cars and wasn't going anywhere. I had a 15,000-square-foot house but didn't have a home. I would go three for four in a baseball game and dominate on the football field. I would get a pick six and dance in the end zone, but I couldn't get the ringing out of my head. I became suicidal. I wanted to cry for help, but back then I was the man. How's the man going to cry for help? The message I heard growing up was don't cry, don't be soft, don't tell people your problems, just man up. And he was later asked how he found true fulfillment. He said this, I gave up. He went from trying to man up. He says, I gave up. I surrendered my life to Jesus. Life is so much better when you surrender to him. That is the invitation today. Surrender your whole life to Jesus. And listen, if you will do that, guys, the only thing you will lose in the end, the only thing you will lose in the end is eternal damnation. I don't know if you notice this in here. But the reality is, not everyone is going to enter into this new heaven. Did you notice that in Revelation 21.8? There are some people, when they draw their last breath here on earth, they are going to be completely undone, isolated, exhausted, unfulfilled, and enslaved by the desires of their own heart. And I, you know, I know that we don't like talking about this stuff. Um, but the truth is, like, judgment is coming. And that is going to be a wonderful reality for some of us and a horrifying reality for others. 
And I would love to end my sermon just talking about heaven, but I need to say a word about hell because Jesus doesn't just talk about it here, but he talked about it a lot himself in the Gospels. And here are just a few examples of this. This is Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for what? For every empty word they have spoken. <laughs> that's, that's a bummer. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, I prayed a prayer and I asked you in my heart a vacation Bible school. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Here's, here's one more. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then verse 41, look at this. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, um, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger in any clothes or ill in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So, look, according to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, there is an eternal torment that awaits everybody who rejects Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There is an eternal torment that waits for everyone who just with lip service gives Jesus their, their, their word without really actually giving their life to Jesus and his word. There is a place where people will be given over to their sin. The sin that they loved so much they refused to give it to Jesus. See, in hell, the, the, the thing about hell that, that, that just sucks so much about it is, listen... In hell, you become the sin you refuse to surrender to Jesus. And so if, if it was money, if it was greed, if that's the thing that you're like, I ain't giving that to you, like that, 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 if that was your God, you will become greed. If it was lust, you will become that. If it was materialism, you will become that. If it's bitterness that you had towards somebody and you wouldn't give, like you will become that. That's what's going to make hell so awful. There's no goodness in hell. Like you are, are, are defined by and you are ruled by your very sins that you wanted more than you wanted God himself. And I listen, in hell, a lot of people ask me, like, do you think it's like literal flames, metaphorical flames? Like, I don't know, but this is what I do know. According to Jesus, there's going to be no end to people's torment in hell. That even after suffering for millions and millions of years, you'll be no nearer to the end than when you started. And that is really bad news. But here is the good news. You don't have to go to hell. As C.S. Lewis says, hell is locked from the, the inside. Is that, is that the right phrase? Like It's basically the idea of like, 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 like people that go to hell, they want to be there. Again, because they love their sin more than they love God. It's not like God's like, you're going to hell, and you're going to hell, and you're going to hell. It's like you just, you really thought that that would be the thing that makes you happier than God. Jesus is the key to get you out of that. But you said, I don't want that key. Like, I know better than he does. Like, this is what I want. 
And so, but here's the good news, man. Like, like, you don't have to go to hell. Hell was actually not made for you. Do you realize that? Hell, according to the scriptures in Matthew 25, 41 that we just read, was made for the devil and his angels. Now, here's the thing. Do we deserve hell? Yes, the Bible is clear that we deserve hell. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus came to give you what you do not deserve. Jesus came to give you a life with God. He came to give you heaven. He came to give you the love and the family and the rest and the purpose and the peace and the pleasure that you long to have. And if you're like, well, how do I get in on that? How do I do it? Is it perfect church attendance? Is it tithing regularly? Is it making sure that I do all the right things? Like, how do I get in on this? Well, here's what God says, and we'll end here this morning. In Revelation 22, 17, it says, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes, the one who just wishes, take the free gift of the water of life. And that is what Jesus is after. He wants you to experience life, man. He wants you to experience life, woman. He wants you to experience life, teenager. He's the author of it. He wants you to experience deep life, full life, robust, eternal life. And here's the thing. It's life that you can have today free of charge because he already paid for it at the cross. So today, if you've never trusted your life to Jesus, if you've never fully surrendered everything to him, I pray that you will do that today. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. As they do, I want to pray. And I just want to ask you before I pray, like, have you come to a place of complete and total surrender to Jesus? Or are there things that you are still holding on to, that you're still clinging to, that you believe will bring you more joy, more fulfillment than Jesus? And listen, if that's, if that's where you are, I just want to say this, if that's where you are, if, you're, if, you're, if, there's, a, if there's something else that you begin to believe is going to give you the joy and the peace and fulfillment, more so than even Christ, I would just ask you this, like, who told you that story? Where did you get that from? From a book, from a movie, from a comic, from a song? Where did that story come from? And why do you believe it? You know, we started this whole series saying that the stories we believe are the stories that shape us for better or for worse. And, and you've heard now the story of God. You hear where this is going. And I just want to ask you, can you at least with humility say this? I at least want this story to be true. And if so, I would encourage you today to embrace it as truth. To say, look, I know it's going to take me faith to believe some story. I've got to choose some story. And I'm going to choose this story. I'm going to give my life to this story. I pray that maybe for some of you for the very first time, like that will be you. Father, I thank you for everyone who is in this room. For those who are listening online, I thank you for your word. Which sometimes is a little difficult when we've got to talk about things like hell. And I'm just reminded right now, God, even like maybe somebody here, they're, they're angry about this text. They're like, wait a minute, like I sinned for 70 years and I get eternal fire, eternal flame, eternal life. That's not fair. Maybe they're wrestling with that, God. And I'm just reminded as I've heard others say that, that, that the punishment fits the crime. That if we sin against one another, that's a bad thing. But to sin against an eternal God, to reject an eternal God, we know results in eternal torment because of our own decisions. I pray today, God, that, that for everyone in this room today, that they would just hand you whatever it is they're clinging to, they would release that. 
that they would stop trying to, that we would stop trying to make this place our one shot at true happiness, that we would stop living for instant gratification, that we would live with the end in mind, that we'd be a people, a church that passionately proclaims the kingdom of God to others, that we would remember that that this hell that you speak of, it's a real place, but you desire none shall perish. You desire that all have eternal life. And I pray that we would be your mouthpiece, that we would be your body, that even today, God, this week, in our school, our work, we would look for people to share the good news of the gospel and to remind people that nobody has to go to hell, that because of Jesus, which you've accomplished for us, we have everything we need for this life and the life to come. I pray that in the time we have as we sing, we take communion, that we'd be able to celebrate these realities with our whole heart, that we would remember, God, our testimony of what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.